Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appleyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. In today's episode, we will be exploring the fascinating life of Josephine Baker, who was an American dancer, singer and actress who rose to prominence in 1920s Paris. As well as this, she was a member of the French Resistance and was honoured by her adopted country during the Second World War. Despite being a woman of colour, she found huge acclaim and success and at one point was the highest paid entertainer in Europe. So where did it all begin? Josephine Baker was born Frida Josephine MacDonald in St. Louis, Missouri in 1906. Her mother was a washerwoman called Carrie MacDonald and her father was the vaudeville drummer Eddie Carson. Sadly, Eddie abandoned the family and Josephine's mother went on to marry a man called Arthur Martin. They had a son and two more daughters together. And although Martin was a kind man, he did struggle to find work and was always unemployed. In this environment, Josephine grew up cleaning houses and babysitting for well-off white families who allegedly would urge her to, quote, be sure not to kiss the baby, supposedly on account of the fact that she was a black girl. And this is a clear signifier of racist attitudes at that time. And, you know, of course, she did not remain a babysitter for long. Later, she found other employment as a waitress at a place called the the Old Chauffeur's Club, when she was just 13. While there, she met and had a brief marriage to a man called Willie Wells. In this era, women were often financially dependent on their husbands. Josephine was unusual in the fact she was always very independent, and Jesus was not trapped in her marriages, which may account for her triple divorcee status. Her other exes would include Willie Baker in 1921, whose name she would keep, and the Frenchman Jean Lyon in 1937, and also French orchestra leader Joe Bouillon in 1947, who would help her raise her 12 adopted children. More on that later. Josephine's first taste of show business came in 1919, when she toured with the Jones Family Band and the Dixie Steppers, performing comical skits. After these groups disbanded, she tried her luck as a chorus girl for the Dixie Steppers in Sissel and Blake's production of Shuffle Along. However, she was rejected for being, quote, too skinny and too dark. Despite this, she learned the chorus line and routine, while working as a dresser instead. As a result, she was able to step in when a dancer was unexpectedly unwell or left the company, and she would perform the role a little differently to what was expected, 
often being a little clumsy and having a comical edge. But this proved to be hugely popular with audiences. And due to that, the show had a real flourishing box office and she herself was the draw. So it just shows how her talent really shone and she was this great charismatic presence. Josephine found real success in the integrated Parisian society. When La Revue Negri closed, she starred in La Folie du Jour at the Folies Bergeret Theatre. Her iconic performance included a costume of 16 bananas strung into a skirt. This cemented her celebrity status and is perhaps the look she is most remembered for today. She became one of the most photographed women in the world and by 1927 earned more than any entertainer in Europe, a monumental achievement for a woman of colour in the early half of the 20th century. Although it was wonderful, Josephine had found success and recognition for her talent, we have to also address the problematic cultural trends at the time that may have helped propel her to stardom. In the 1920s, there was a widespread fascination with African culture. This spanned from art movements like Cubism, which drew inspiration from tribal arts, and fed into every art form, from music to dance and theatre. However, the origins of this artistic boom are deeply rooted in colonialism, as at this time France was in control of large portions of West Africa, and the looting of art which started as far back as Napoleon when he ransacked Egypt. Some other notable examples include artworks from Benin, which was completely devastated by these attacks in the 19th century. And um, also Britain are not innocent at all in, in those events either. And many Benin bronzes still exist today in the British Museum and other museums in England, but France were also involved with this. And there was also a museum called the Musée d'Ethnographie du Trocadero, which opened in the 1870s and was one of the first anthropological museums in the world, uh, particularly of its kind, with this particular focus. And it was visited by many artists, probably most famously Picasso, who was influenced by its display of African masks. And he speaks quite strangely about his experiences in this particular museum. And I think it's quite illuminating, and particularly in regards to some of the attitudes towards these cultures at that time. So Picasso said that he believed these works of art were created quote, as a kind of meditation between humanity and the unknown hostile forces that surround us, end quote. So, you know, it was very othering and I suppose a lot of these nations were seen as being uncivilised in air quotes and you know, this this has been a thing throughout Western civilization. this very superior attitude that we are the, the, the nations who are truly civilised and we have a lot to teach other people. 
And I think these these damaging ideas were very pervasive in this time period, even among the avant-garde and the bohemian artists of the you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And, you know, artworks like this were everywhere. They flooded the general markets. You could find them in flea markets, being sold on the streets. And they were very common and very much in the public eye. And, you know, it's not just the looting and colonial power that makes the sudden craze for African culture unsettling, but also the simplistic attitudes to people of colour and their heritage. The word primitive was often suggested when people discussed this artwork and this portrays African art as existing outside the visual language of Western art, that it was somehow basic and in its early phase of development. We also have to bear in mind that many of these masks and carved statues would have had a purpose and a spiritual meaning in many cases, and the function of these objects and their significance within the context of how they were made and why they were made are completely lost and diluted to just being aesthetic and decorative, with all the variety of these individual societies and groups in Africa turning into one kind of vague conglomeration. It is quite patronising and quite a racist concept that also fed into other things. So the French public were becoming quite jaded by all these technological advancements and they would often idealise African culture for their perceived simple way of life, which many people living in the hustle and bustle of the city yearned for. And unfortunately, Josephine's performance at this time is very much tied up with this, quote, negrophilia craze that verged on fetishistic and did exacerbate many of these troubling ideas. So her dance style was described as animalistic and intense. Her body sort of trembled and moved in this serpent-like manner. And the inclusion of the banana skirt also presents perhaps a self-awareness that she was creating this exotic, provocative caricature of an, of an African stereotype. And I think it's also worth mentioning that African-American culture was also gaining traction in Europe, particularly in terms of jazz music. And many artists, including Josephine, may have made their way overseas to sort of to take advantage of this fashion in places like Paris in order to secure success and fame in their chosen art form and why wouldn't they I mean these are particularly Josephine when you think about her ambition it makes sense that she went to Paris and she was a performer so we cannot blame her for going down this road but it is worth bearing in mind how her dance can be viewed in quite a different way from a contemporary lens. Anyway, into the 1930s, Josephine moved away from dancing a little bit and she starred in two movies, one called Zuzu and Princess Tam Tam was the other. And her success also allowed her to 
help her family who she moved from St. Louis to Les Melandes, which was this incredible palatial chateau surrounded by parkland. And during this time, she decided to move away from dancing, as I mentioned, and she did a bit of acting, but she also pursued a singing career. And she had a hit song called I Have Two Lovers, which I will link in the show notes. Josephine's financial success was also peaking and it did prompt her to start generously donating to various charities, including Paris hospitals, schools and children's causes. She also opened her own cabaret, Chez Josephine, as well as signing contracts with Casino de Paris and Folies Bergeret. So it was up and up, she was in hot demand. And eventually, the most desirable bachelorette in France found her Prince Charming and she married Jean Leon, um, who was a Jewish French industrialist. And as a result of this, she became a French national in 1938. Seeing no future together, however, the marriage was short-lived, although some good did come of it because it allowed Josephine's husband, Jean, and his family to flee to the United States in the early days of the war, which would have saved them from a terrible fate in the concentration camps. In 1936, she returned to America to star in the Ziegfeld Follies. This proved to be a bit of a disaster and would have a huge impact on Josephine's life. Audiences completely rejected the idea of a black woman with so much sophistication and power. Reviews were very cruel and filled with terrible racist rhetoric. This was such a blow for Baker and caused her to return to Europe. While in America, however, she also encountered many issues involving her race that she was not accustomed to in Paris, which in general was a much more liberal city and there was no segregation there. But in America, she was not allowed in the best hotels, despite being able to afford it and despite her fame. Uh, She also told a story once about being snubbed by a famous actress, not disclosing who it was, but essentially this woman refused to eat with her due to the colour of her skin. And she was completely furious by these experiences and very defiant as well, leading her to a lot of activism, particularly later in her life. Until then, however, she, as I said, returned to France, where she was once again embraced wholeheartedly. During World War II, Josephine performed to French troops and was an honourable correspondent for the French resistance. Her cover work included smuggling secret messages written on her sheet music, which was so terrifying and very brave. She was also a sub-lieutenant in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and was later awarded the Medal of the Resistance with Rosettes and named a Chevalier of the Legion of Honour by the French government for her hard work and dedication. Despite the failure of her previous performance in the US, 
Josephine did visit her home country in the 50s and 60s, fueled by a renewed desire to confront and fight racism. New York's popular stork club refused to serve her during one of these visits. This exploded into a media battle with pro-segregation columnist Walter Winchell. The NAACP named May 20th Josephine Baker Day in honour of her efforts as a result of this experience. It is also worth mentioning that Josephine was one of two women, including Daisy Bates, who addressed the crowds during the historic 1963 Washington March alongside Martin Luther King. In her speech, she talked about her successes abroad and her experiences with segregation in the States. She also advocated for other ethnic minority groups and spoke passionately about inspiring the younger generation. During this time, and perhaps slightly inspired by the events of the Washington March and some of the ideals that were expressed in that day, she started to adopt children, forming a family she often referred to as her rainbow tribe. She wanted to prove that, quote, children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers, end quote. She would take her children with her cross-country, and when they were together at Les Melandas, tours were arranged so visitors could walk the grounds and see how natural and happy the family were. There is something a little strange about this, particularly when considering she charged admission and often arranged for the children to sing and dance in front of an audience, as well as building a hotel and rides on the premises, indicating that to a certain point she commodified her family. This aspect of Josephine's life has been criticised as her parenting tactics also included raising her children in different religions and fabricating backstories for them. One example of this is that Baker wanted to adopt a Jewish boy from Israel, but when she was not allowed to, she instead adopted a French boy and raised him Jewish anyway. The children grew up with little individuality and existed as a united symbol of this utopian ideal that people from different races and religions could all coexist together. One of her children, Jean-Claude Baker, later said, quote, she wanted a doll, end quote. All in all, Josephine raised two daughters, French-born Marianne and Moroccan-born Stellina, and ten sons, the Korean-born Geno, Japanese-born Akio, Colombian-born Luis, Finnish-born Jari, French-born Jean-Claude, Noel and Moise, Algerian-born Brahim, Ivorian-born Kofi, and Venezuelan-born Mara. For some time, Baker lived with her children and did enormous stuff in the chateau with her fourth husband, Joe Bullion. As the children became teenagers, they started to rebel. Josephine was also struggling to finance their lavish lifestyle, as her relevance was dwindling and the money was running out. She sold their home and moved somewhere more affordable in Monaco with the help of her friend Princess Grace. Fairly quickly, the family started to disband. Some went to live with their adopted father. Others were sent to boarding school, 
Quite bizarrely, her daughter Marianne was sent away to live with one of Josephine's longtime fans in the UK. Perhaps most tragically, when Josephine discovered her son Jerry was gay at 15, she admonished him and turned him out of the home, forcing him to live with Joe Bullion in South America. Tragedy continued to follow the children. Moist died of cancer. Noelle was also committed to a psychiatric hospital diagnosed with schizophrenia. And sadly, Jean-Claude committed suicide in 2000. And 15. You have to wonder if maybe their unusual upbringing may have triggered some trauma within them. But of course, this is me just speculating. I don't know anything about this kind of thing. But it clearly had some detrimental impact on all of the children. Alongside these events, Josephine did continue to work. She also did have some success. So she travelled America widely and she developed a close friendship with the artist Robert Brady. Now divorced from her fourth husband she was looking for companionship on a more platonic level and found this with Brady and on a road trip to Mexico in 1973 they exchanged marriage vows in an empty church. Although never legally marrying they had this very important personal commitment to one another. This was quite a private affair and Josephine rarely spoke about it to anyone fearful the press would find out and ridicule her. That same year, Josephine was invited to perform at Carnegie Hall, which she approached with trepidation, likely still haunted by the memories of her previous critical and audience reception. However, there had been much positive cultural progress since then, and she was greeted with a standing ovation before the concert even began. The enthusiasm from the audience moved Josephine deeply, causing her to openly weep on stage. In 1975, Josephine premiered at the Bobino Theatre in Paris, with stars like Princess Grace of Monaco and Sophia Loren in attendance to see her perform an array of pieces from her 50-year career. The reviews were glowing. Only days later, Josephine slipped into a coma and passed away as a result of a cerebral haemorrhage on April 12th at the age of 68. So that's very sad. She was quite young to pass away, but it is wonderful that she had that moment before she died where she was once again embraced and held up and glorified for her talent. So that is very heartwarming, despite her tragic death. And, you know, the love continued to pour for her. Over 20,000 people mobbed the streets of Paris to watch her funeral procession on its way to the Church of Madeleine. The French government honoured her with a 21-gun salute, making her the first American woman buried in France to receive such an honour. She was buried in Monaco, where she originally died. Later, she would be spiritually enshrined in the Pantheon in Paris, and soil from the various places she lived would be buried there instead of her actual remains. 
next to the nation's most lauded figures in history, including the philosophers Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the novelists Victor Hugo and Emile Zola. She was the sixth woman to be buried there and the third black person and the first black woman to be laid to rest there as well, which is incredibly significant. In conclusion, Josephine Baker's life was a complex and fascinating one. She was determined to have the life she wanted for herself and achieved remarkable things in the early half of the 20th century. She was a household name and amassed great prosperity and influence. In many ways, she was an icon of the 1920s who captured the bohemian and sexually liberated sensibilities of the time. In addition, Josephine was multi-talented, singing, dancing and acting, and completely dominated. Furthermore, her exploits in World War II showed tremendous bravery and devotion to her adopted country, and further emphasises her strength of character and resilience. This is also shown in her activism, fighting against segregation in the States. Her achievements are vast and her legacy hugely important. However, we of course cannot forget that Josephine Baker, like all of us, was complex and not perfect, as seen in her attempt to create this utopian family, which instead appeared stifling and artificial, leading to much unhappiness among the children within it, who could not quite fit into her perfect mould. Examining Josephine's early career also highlights the problematic nature of negrophilia, and the effects of colonialism in the arts. This is interesting to critique, but should not take away from Josephine's achievements and her genuine charisma and talent. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I will post sources and links to Josephine's speeches and her music in the show notes. There will also be photos of Josephine Baker on our Instagram accounts, which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity. I hope to be posting a lot more now. I've had a bit of a break, but I'm back at it, feeling very inspired and raring to go. So I hope you've enjoyed today and I hope you stick around for a new episode, fingers crossed, in two weeks' time. But until then, goodbye.